0: Picture yourself driving down I-20 in Meridian, Mississippi. It's your average American town with Motel 6s and McDonald's. As you near the exit, you decide to turn off because there's something interesting just over there, just off the frontage road, glinting in the sunlight. As you turn off, you see a lot for sale. Big billboard plastered on top of an abandoned entrance gate maybe last used 35 years ago. Next to it, there's a white structure covered in rust standing out against that blue sky behind an ever-growing forest of trees. Could this be a drive-in? As you continue down the road, you suddenly jerk your car to the right onto the shoulder in surprise. There, looming behind some trees, a specter on this otherwise cheerful summer day. The foliage is lush and green, but what lays behind it is eerie. Something out of the Twilight Zone. Concrete block turrets. Gray with age. Two of them. A rusting metal gate between them. Solid and vintage. Standing slightly askew. Arching overhead. A sign, or what used to be one. It's not legible from inside your car. It's hidden behind branches and leaves. But something compels you to step out of your car and get a closer look. And as you step from the car, the chill of the air conditioner quickly is driven away by the hot air of this southern summer, heavy on your skin like a wet wool blanket. You bat away a cloud of mosquitoes as you step from faded asphalt onto concrete that is literally vanishing into the grass below your feet. And as your hand clears your face, the outline of long-faded letters on the sign becomes clear. Tangled overgrowth obscuring the path that once ran beneath it. This was the entrance to Royal Land in Meridian, Mississippi. Today it's all abandoned. The amusement park and the fairgrounds and the drive-in and the baseball stadium But a generation ago, this small corner of Meridian, Mississippi, was a bustling place to be. It began with A. Lloyd Royal, Sr. He was a man of the South, born in the 1910s. He spent his early 20s between 1936 and 1944 building at least 14 independent movie theaters across Mississippi. In Greenwood, Hattiesburg, Gulfport, Picayune, Macomb, Carrollton, Lumberton, and Purvis, among other towns... Royal established different movie houses. It was in January of 1941 when Royal opened his first theater in Meridian. It was called the Royal Theater, and it became the fifth movie theater in the town. By the accounts I read, the Royal Theater was said to have quickly established itself as a landmark. Think of the time period. The movie theaters then would have had air conditioning of some sort long before it was common in people's houses. And this, of course, is the South. On a hot, muggy summer day, where do you go but to the movies? Theaters opened and closed in Meridian throughout the war years, but the Royal Theater stayed strong. By the 1950s, a big title change was sweeping through the states. If you recall my last episode on the Land of Kong, where I talked about the history of U.S. roadways, you'll remember the Federal Highway Act, which became law in 1956. The 1950s saw a huge boom in American car ownership. Pre-World War II, most people did not own a car, so even though there were many, many millions of cars on the road, this still was only a small percentage of the population. Post-war, though, there were a glut of small cheap houses that were being built outside towns all over in order to accommodate returning soldiers and their ever-growing families. Prosperity meant that owning a car was within reach for the average American, and not only that, but cars began to have air conditioning installed as a standard feature. Cars were almost more comfortable than the American living room. So what entered the picture? The drive-in theater entered the picture. The earliest forms of drive-in were set up in 1915, but the drive-in theater as a concept was patented officially in 1933 by Richard Hollingshead Jr. His first drive-in theater opened in New Jersey that year, but pre-World War II, there were still only a handful of theaters open in the U.S., maybe like 15. Post-war, of course, drive-ins boomed like everything else, and hundreds of new drive-in theaters opened each year across the country. Lloyd Royal capitalized on that bandwagon, and he opened the Royal Drive-In somewhere around the early 50s at 2601 Sawashi Street there in Meridian, Mississippi. It was located adjacent to a baseball stadium, but we'll get there. Royal State connected. He served on a bunch of committees, the War Activities Committee of the MPAA, the March of Dimes Committee, the former president of the Lumberton Rotary Club, and the Legislative Committee of the Meridian Exchange Club. This one I actually had to look up because I was unfamiliar with it. It wasn't something where we grew up. It turns out that this is a national service organization. The Mississippi District has been a part of the national organization since the 1920s, and it's still going strong today. So back to Lloyd Royal. By 1952, he had some more accolades. He was president of the Mississippi Theater Owners Association, and a blurb in the newspaper called him, quote, one of the most progressive and important exhibitors in the state, end quote. By 1959, he'd served as president of the Tri-State Theater Owners Association, as well as president of the Meridian Exchange Club. Not only was Royal interested in being a business manager and owning his own line of theaters, though, he was also actually part of the movie business itself. Royal produced or wrote three movies by most accounts, 1954's Jesse James's Women, 1956's Frontier Woman, and 1960's Natchez Trace. All of these were filmed in the South, not in Hollywood. Royal, by this point, was the president of Panorama Pictures, which was a Mississippi-based production company. Now, two of his movies are still extant and easily watchable today. Jesse James's Woman is available in full under public domain license on the Internet Archive. Now, to be fully honest, I did not watch it. I'm not particularly interested in westerns. Um, this one seems like a classic 50s western that may or may not have aged well given its description. Here's the summary that I found for it. Quote, the fugitive outlaw enjoys the company of several ladies while he and his gang hide out in a Mississippi town, end quote. Now, the other one, Natchez Trace, is what seems to be the most popular of the three films, and it has a 6.9 out of 10 rating on IMDb, which is pretty good. Um, the description of this one is, quote, the daughter of a murdered plantation owner and her fiancé try to disrupt an outlaw's plans to build an empire of thieves along the popular Mississippi-Tennessee trail, end quote. Now this trail and the name of the movie is the name of a 440 mile long trail that exists in reality um, between Nashville, Tennessee and Natchez, Mississippi. Um, And this used to be really popular, like a really popular way to get between the two, um, the two places. Um, But it fell out of use when traffic shifted from trails to steamboats, to riverboat traffic on the Mississippi. The third movie is called frontier woman. And The plot summary of this was exceedingly confusing, and it's not surprising that this movie didn't seem to do particularly well. Rumor has it that most or all copies of this film have been destroyed, except for one which is said to be in the hands of the film's tiniest, trivialist star. So today, this film is really only noted for one thing. Actor Harold Beckenhold played an unscrupulous traitor in the film. That was his character. Um, He included his son, Ron, who was then eight months old, in the film in a small cameo, because why not? Of course, you don't know Harold Beckenhold or Ron Beckenhold, but Harold changed his name to Rance Howard, and you definitely know Ron Howard who made his feature film debut here in Frontier Woman. Yes, that Ron Howard, the very famous one, with many, many film credits to his name, things like Apollo 13 and The Andy Griffith Show and Happy Days and on and on and on. All three of these movies were well-received at the time of their release, and it seems like they had special showings at the local theaters in order to honor their local filmmaker. So somewhere in the mid-1950s, between movie productions and theater openings, Lloyd Royal added baseball stadium owner to the list. He purchased Buckwalter Stadium, adjacent to the Royal Drive-In that he'd purchased a few years prior, there on Sawashi Street. The stadium was not brand new. Now, it's falsely claimed in many articles and discussions on the topic of Royal Land and Buckwalter Stadium that the stadium was actually constructed in the 1930s. The most popular video about this place even claims the site was built in the 1930s, backing up this like falsehood. If you Google 1930s abandoned baseball stadium, you will find this video that I'm talking about as the top result. Um, I, of course, will link it in my show notes, and I'll link the playlist that I've created on the YouTube channel for this episode. It's really unfortunate that there's this claim that this baseball stadium was built earlier. Um, what these sites are actually doing is falsely conflating two different baseball parks. There's Fairgrounds Park and Buckwalter Stadium. So after my research in this area, what, what is the truth or what I think is the truth based on my research is that the stadium was actually built in 1947. The local team back then was this new club. It was called the Meridian Peps, and their president was a guy named Charles Buckwalter, who at one time owned the Meridian Pepsi-Cola bottling plant. In fact, if you think about it, you might see where the name came from. Meridian Peps, Pepsi-Cola, Meridian Peps, Pepsi-Cola. The club formed after the war, and the team played minor league baseball in the Southeastern League. But It wasn't an easy road. Despite popularity with the local audience, baseball was still an expensive proposition. The Peps didn't have their own park, so they played at Fairgrounds Park, which is located on the site of the now-defunct Valley Fair Mall in modern Meridian. Teams had played there since 1922, or even earlier. The Meridian Mets, Meridian Scrappers, Meridian Bears, Meridian Eagles, and now, of course, the Meridian Peps. But the Peps weren't happy with the stadium. At the end of the 1946 season, a couple of articles came out in the local papers. An October article stated, quote, Charles Buckwalter, president of the Meridian Peps Southeastern League, said he would not be entering a team in the 1947 race unless a satisfactory park is provided in which to play. Buckwalter said the club went deeply in the hole last year, spending about $5,000 for the use of the fairgrounds privately owned, while some cities had to only pay a token fee of $1 for the entire year, end quote. A November article in the Selma Times-Journal echoed similar sentiments, noting that the future of the Meridian Club in the Southeastern Baseball League was dependent on, quote, civic pride and spirit, as the current owners of the fairground field baseball park that they were playing at were charging them this exorbitant fee to use the park. And, to add insult to injury, they wouldn't allow the team to collect on-fence advertisements, which could have brought in a proposed $2,500. That opinion article closes by saying, quote, that is definitely a losing proposition and Charles Buckwalter is certainly within his rights in refusing to pay through the nose for civic enterprise, end quote. By January of 1947, Buck Walter had reached a deal with the Peps to be a subsidiary for the Cleveland Indians. And in this deal he retained some stocks for himself as well as the title of president, and it seems likely that this this deal allowed him to pick up the additional funding he needed to construct Buck Walter Stadium, his own park at which the Meridian Peps could play. Several articles in 1947 refer to the new Buckwalter Stadium and games being played at the new Buckwalter Stadium. So, clearly, Buckwalter Stadium was built in 1947, not the 1930s. Unfortunately, it's not really clear what happened with um, the Peps being a subsidiary team for the Indians, Once again, two years later, the club was actually up for sale again. In comments to the paper in 1949, Buckwalter claimed that he had suffered financial losses for each of the three previous seasons of the club's operation. And he declared that the club would need additional financial backing or else it would have to leave Meridian for nearby Laurel or Hattiesburg, both cities which had expressed interest in the team. By February of that year, a group of local businessmen did step up to the plate, leasing the team and the park from Buckwalter in a $10,000 deal. In today's money, that's something like $105,000. A 1949 article notes additionally that Buckwalter, quote, "...personally built Peps field out of his own pocket." End quote. Though the citizens had grand plans for the ownership of their newly renamed Meridian Millers team... The B Class Southeastern League fell apart after only a year, and so too the Meridian Millers were done playing baseball. In 1951 and 1952, with no baseball happening, Charles Buckwalter began hosting the new Meridian Fair and Cattle Show at his Buckwalter Stadium instead of baseball. But by 1952, Meridian was back in the baseball game, and the Meridian Millers were back. They took over the Clarksdale position in the Class C Cotton States League. The Meridian Millers actually had huge successes their first couple years in the league, and they won the championship in 1952 and 1953. But the glory days of baseball in Meridian were not going to last. Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier in Major League Baseball after the war in 1947, However, despite this, the hurdles were fierce for non-whites, and the Cotton States League and other Deep South teams did not follow the increasingly popular sentiment of integration. These teams refused to integrate, hiring white players only. This unsurprisingly alienated fans of color. Minor League Baseball also started to see fierce competition from a wide range of similarly accessible amusement options. Baseball fans could watch Major League Baseball on TV or listen to it on the radio. They didn't have to go to a minor league to get their fix. And all these together meant that attendance at minor leagues games began to drop. One team in the South tried to buck the trend. The Cotton States League team, known as the Hot Springs Bathers, hired two players in 1953, Jim and Leander Tuggerson. Both of these guys were World War II veterans who'd been pitchers from the Negro League. And yes, they were black. And this was a hugely controversial move. This was done against the opposition of the league president in 1953, who's quoted as saying, quote, I advised against signing black players and requested they do not attempt it at this time, knowing the Hornet's Nest it would stir up, End quote. It seems like the Hornet's Nest was mostly stirred up with management more than anything, because five days after these players were signed, the remaining teams in the Cotton States League met and voted unanimously to expel the bathers from the league as a result of hiring these two black pitchers. The bathers were later reinstated that season, but only if the Tuggersons were shipped away to other teams in different leagues. What happened, however, interestingly, was that they were still owned by the bathers. So even though they were playing for other teams, they were still required to report back to the bathers if they needed them. And so, Later that year, in April, the Bathers had a pitching injury in their roster. And so they called Jim Tuggerson back up to play in the Cotton States League on the Hot Springs Bathers. He he came up and he did. He was set to pitch in front of 1,500 people. Huge crowds. The lights were on. The bats were out. Everyone was ready. And then, all of a sudden, right before the first pitch was going to be thrown, the president of the Cotton States League, called the game of forfeit because they had a black pitcher. Jim Tuggerson went back to the Knoxville Smokies in the D-Class League where he was playing, and he was celebrated there. He got his own night named after him, Jim Tuggerson Knight, and he won them some championships. And then he filed a federal lawsuit against the Cotton States League's, its team, and its president. The lawsuit was ultimately dismissed that year, But it was really too late, and it was a sign of a turning tide. The Bathers hired another player of color in 1954, Uvoid Reynolds, and he suited up and played that whole year. Not only that, but also in 1954, even our team, the team we're focusing on, the Meridian Millers, they too hired a person of color against the strictures of the Mississippi Constitution that had been set back in 1890. And this guy, we've got to talk about this guy next. Born in March 1936 in Bocas del Toro, Panama, Carlos Chico Herron was a right-handed second baseman. In 1954, he joined the Meridian Millers, and he became the first player of color to sign with a Mississippi team. He played with a number of teams, both in the U.S. and in Panama, over the next decade, before moving to a more managerial position, coaching teams in both Canada and Panama throughout the 70s. He held the position of Panama's national team coach, actually, for more than 20 years. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about Chico Heron, here's the thing. The thing that he is known for is that he was a scout in the modern era. Starting about in the late 1970s, he scouted for several teams like the Philadelphia Phillies, the Kansas City Royals, the St. Louis Cardinals, and just this little team called the New York Yankees. And it's here that is why Chico Heron is really well known, and it's because he brought this young guy to the attention of the Yankees. This young pitcher caught the eye of Heron and after some time pitching under observation in Panama, Mariano Rivera was signed by the New York Yankees. And even if you're not into baseball, you've probably got at least some passing familiarity with that name. Mariano Rivera was the Yankees' closing pitcher for 17 years between 1995 and 2013. His presence at the end of games was signaled by the song Enter Sandman, ominous tones from the music marking how well he did at saving games for the team. Mariano Rivera was a huge contributor to the Yankees' success during his time there, and it's only because of Chico Heron that he obtained the position to begin with. Heron was more than just a scout, though. It's said that he had a huge and lasting influence on the people he worked with. He instilled this sense of discipline in every player. He was dedicated, he gave everything of himself, and he was this hugely inspirational figure in the lives of the people he worked with long after he scouted them for teams. After Jaron's death in 2007, Mariano Rivera described Chico Jaron saying, quote, he was one of those men that if I call him any time, any time that I need something from him, he would have done it on the spot, end quote. Rivera went on to say, quote, that's how close he was to me. I respect that man until the day he died, end quote. This then is the legacy of Chico Heron, who got his start playing for the Meridian Millers at Buckwalter Stadium in 1954. At the end of the 1954 season, all players of color hired in the Cotton States League were unfortunately released to other teams. And baseball at this unpretentious field actually just came to an end the next year, in 1955. It's said that a team called the Pine Bluff Judges joined with the Meridian Millers midseason in order to even complete the season. And there, at the end of 1955, the Cotton States League collapsed and came to an end. Here then in 1955, we are almost ready to talk about Royal Land. With the collapse of the Cotton States League marking the end of baseball at Buckwalter Stadium, fairs and movies really became the non-televised entertainment options for the day. It appears that the Royal Family purchased Buckwalter Stadium from Charles Buckwalter around this time. As noted earlier, the new Meridian Fair had operated at least in 1951 and 1952, but from what I can tell, the general opinion at the time was that the fair under other operation was really going downhill. It was getting smaller and more run down. By 1956 or 1957, though, with the purchase of Buckwalter Stadium and the surrounding lands, Lloyd Royal began operating the Mississippi Alabama State Fair in Meridian. Now, as a brief sidebar, It seems that if the fair did operate in 1956 in Meridian, it was just not noteworthy, or it was just hugely overshadowed by something else. And here's what happens. If you Google Mississippi-Alabama Fair, you're going to get thousands of hits about the 1956 fair held in Tupelo. Of course, we know that the fair is held in multiple cities throughout the season all over the country, right? But 1956 in Tupelo was something different a young singer. What's his name? What's his name? Oh, I wish I knew. Elvis. Elvis Presley had become incredibly famous in 1956, and he returned to Tupelo, his birthplace in this homecoming event at the fair that year. It was unsurprisingly hugely popular. You can actually find several videos of the event up on YouTube, and they'll be in your search results if you search for this. Elvis' charm in these videos is undeniable. He cuts this super magnetic figure up on this slightly elevated stage right above his screaming fans, and you can see why he captured the nation's interests back at this time. The Mississippi-Alabama State Fair in Meridian, though, was from then on held at the old Buckwalter Stadium behind the Royal Drive-In. The grandstands, the former baseball stands, were used for big shows and events, and the midway and other concessions stretched out on the land between the baseball stadium and the drive-in. It earned a reputation as, quote, one of the cleanest and best operated fairs in the South, end quote. Big-name carnivals like Century 21 Shows and Heath Shows, famed for their 30-car railroad and mile-long midway, provided impressive midways and rides with the excitement of all of our mid-century and even present-day favorites. Things like the Caterpillar, the Rolloplane, the Mad Mouse Coaster, the Ferris Wheel, and, of course, the Humble Carousel. Refreshment stands and ticket booths were operated by local civic groups and religious organizations. And Royal was an excellent manager, as evidenced by his long track record in the movie theater business. And he regularly came up with new ways to thrill his guests. In 1959, he staged a helicopter landing in nearby Quitman to help promote the fair. This kind of thing was a huge deal at the time, and I think it would probably still draw a crowd today. Um, What actually happened was that a helicopter, a Bell G-47 Whirlybird, picked up someone from Quitman and flew them to the Meridian Fairgrounds to open up the fair. Apparently, the helicopter, the reason they even had this helicopter to begin with was it was a cross-promotion with the Centerpiece Act at the fair that year, the Atterbury Hornback Trapeze Act. And this was very popular just for a couple years in the late 1950s. This act featured two acrobats doing daredevil stunts while dangling outside the helicopter while it flew around over the grounds of the grandstand. Now, it shouldn't be surprising, but several acrobats did get injured during the brief lifetime of this act. The highlight of the 1960 fair was the unique high-diving grandma, Ella Carver. In this pinnacle of spectacle, thousands crowded into the grandstands of the Buckwalter Stadium and watched as the 72-year-old Ella Carver leapt off a flaming 90-foot-tall tower, diving into a six-foot-deep bucket of water, covered in flames. What a spectacle. And so operations continued on. 1960 saw Lloyd Royal opening his own newspaper in Meridian, called the Meridian Leader, as a competitor to the already-established Meridian Star. One story I saw had it that the reason he did this was because he was unsatisfied by how the other editor was handling opinion pieces, and he was frustrated by the restrictions on print advertising, which of course were the lifeblood for a movie business back in that day. And in 1964, Lloyd Royal expanded his fair operations, opening a new fair in Hattiesburg. All the while, his movie theater operations had continued, opening new theaters throughout the South. And in 1967, Lloyd Royal and his sons began construction on something new, adjacent to the drive-in and the stadium fairgrounds. It was a new way to thrill guests coming to the fair. Now, there are two versions of this story. In one, likely the more true version, the rides for Royal Land, because of course that was what they were building, were purchased secondhand and refurbished into working condition. In the other, more colorful version of the story, the one that's much more popular, rides had been abandoned by the carnies at the fairgrounds over the years. Broken, rusting, and otherwise unusable, these rides were then salvaged, cobbled together into something barely functional. Now, like I said, the second option is likely very, very embellished, but this remains the more popular conception of Royal Land that remains on most abandoned theme park and basic urbex sites. Of course, it's very unlikely that any ride destined for the scrap heap would actually be able to be pushed into service in a theme park. So we've got Royal Land. It's this theme park. What did they have there? Of course, they had a train. The most renowned ride at Royal Land was the miniature train. Almost every single recollection I saw about this park wanted to talk about the train, or included something about the train. It appears that the train was this miniature GM aero train streamliner, and it's similar to those made by the Ottaway Amusement Company, which, if you remember back to the Joyland episodes I did last year, you'll remember the story of this amusement magnate. A video of a similar kind of streamliner miniature train can be found on YouTube operating at the Ellis Kansas Railroad Museum. Picture the 1950s space age aesthetic, you know, that retro futurism, sleek and shiny passengers perched on the backs of the open air cars. The train was said to run on a track around the circumference of the park, roughly half a mile to a mile long through the woods, over a trestle bridge, around a small lake that was stocked with jumping goldfish. There was a real train car at Royal Land, too. It was an l Pullman car serving as the restaurant for the park. And there, of course, was just a generic old boxcar that was used as storage. The seminal source for information about the park is this decades-old story from a local paper, and it suggests that the quote-unquote train was left over from a movie set. And in the article, it's not really clear which train they're talking about because they don't really even mention the restaurant. So... Most likely, though, this comment is in reference to the Pullman car that served as a restaurant, because prior to its days at a restaurant at Royal Land, it was actually used in the 1966 film called This Property is Condemned. Indeed, in the newspaper article, Monty Royal is quoted talking about the temperature of the train, saying that it was a bakery in that thing in the summertime. And as the miniature train ride was completely outside and unair conditioned This had to be talking about the Pullman car that was used as a restaurant. Of course, there were a handful of other rides at Royal Land as well. It's reported that there was a merry-go-round as well as other circular umbrella-style flat rides that you could find at any fair. Given the name of the podcast, you know I wish I had more information on the carousel, but alas, with this park, so much has been lost to time. There were apparently pony rides. Um, One of the ponies was named Trigger, and apparently he had a bad temper and liked to kick. And there was a Ferris wheel, which Monty Royal, I've already mentioned him, he was one of Lloyd's sons, um, recollected having nightmares of this thing falling over on top of him. One comment I read suggested there might have been a kiddie Ferris wheel as well as an adult-sized Ferris wheel, but again, this is not clear. Of course, there was also a little roller coaster too, likely a classic Alan Herschel Little Dipper coaster, that simple circuit with its classic ups and downs. If you want to know more about the Alan Herschel Little Dipper, you can go back to my Little America episode where I talked about the one that exists there at that park. It's a really fun, happy first little coaster. <coughs> At Royal Land, it seems as though maybe the coaster wasn't always assembled correctly. Our newspaper article that did the in-depth story on it describes the coaster as having difficulty getting over the hills sometimes. Apparently, it actually had to be pushed by hand, so... There also was a go-kart track adjacent to Royal Land, very visible from the satellite view on Google Maps. It's not clear whether it was a part of Royal Land or a separate attraction. Apparently, there used to be races on Sundays for several years until the nearby hotel complained about the noise. Reportedly, the track sat abandoned for decades before becoming a radio-controlled car track for a few years recently. And really, that's all that was there. Most of the park was said to be operated on an old quote-unquote half-broken generator that was constantly breaking down or just operating with too many draws on its power. The stories described in the newspaper article about Royal Land are like something out of a Stephen King book. It's said that when too much was running at once, everything would slow to a crawl, even the music of the rides. Can you imagine? You're on this, like, carousel, and then half-speed or slower, plinkety-plink carousel carnival music slowly spinning up and slowing down. Terrifying. It's like something out of a horror film. Now, Royal Land opened in 1968. And it operated in 1969 as well, before shuttering for good. While it was open, the place was a wonderful spot for local families, birthday parties, and so on. Apparently, you could even get your name on the marquee out in front of the park when it was your birthday. There was nothing nefarious about the closure of Royal Land. There were no murders, there were no deaths, no illicit activities. The real reasons were solely economic. Royal Land simply didn't make enough money to stay in business it wasn't financially viable. Now, of course, the internet will internet, and I've seen lots of plausible or semi-plausible suggestions that could have also contributed to the downfall of royal land. Things like insurance costs, lands located on a floodplain, bad wells, tax costs, and so forth. Whether any of these reasons truly contributed is unclear, but ultimately, there simply weren't enough guests to keep royal land coming. And there's no extant pictures of royal land in operation that I've been able to find. Everything is lost in people's basements and attics on old film reels and fading away in photo albums. It was only operational for two years. If you've got photos of royal land in any state that you'd like to see posted with the show notes of this episode, please send them in to me. I'd love to have them. The closest thing I could find to operational pictures was actually on a Remember Meridian Facebook page, and it showed this interesting modular-type building that was located inside the old Royal Land Park gates. It turns out, based on comments from that page, that it was simply a house for the royal family that had been built after the park's closure that was situated inside the old theme park gates. It's not there now. It was demolished in the mid-'90s, but... I think that would have been super awesome to live inside of an old theme park, even if none of the theme park operations were still there. Like, no rides, none of that. It still would be so interesting to live where there used to be a theme park. After Royal Inn closed, of course, the rides were slowly auctioned off, sold, or just gotten rid of for scrap. I saw a comment online saying that the roller coaster was the last to go, and that the kids in the family assembled and disassembled the coaster as part of school projects. Wouldn't you be the most popular person in school if you had that? That's awesome. Though Royal Inn closed in 1969, the adjacent businesses stayed operational for several decades longer. The Royal Drive-In closed in 1985, and the last fair operated in Buckwalter Stadium in the late 90s, around 1998 or so. So, yes, that incredibly well filmed, beautiful, viral video about the 1930s baseball stadium? Well, it's more like an abandoned for 20 years 1947 baseball stadium than anything. Still impressive on its own merits, but it certainly hasn't been abandoned since the 1950s, like the video suggests. Now, interestingly, it seems that a documentary is being made, or perhaps has been made already. Panamanian filmmaker Alberto Serra is working on a documentary about the life and legacy of Chico Herron and his influence on modern baseball legends like Mariano Rivera. Part of the documentary was filmed at Buckwalter Stadium. The film is to be called Chico Herron and the Last 42. A trailer for it was actually released in January 2020. However, news reports indicate that the documentary itself was already released last July 2019 in Panama. I'm not clear if the new trailer indicates a new release, perhaps on the film festival circuit, or what's happening. But if you're interested in that, take a look at it on YouTube. Now, the old L&N Pullman car that used to be a restaurant was removed from Royal Land right away. And it was actually moved to where the Meridian Railway Museum is now. It was L&N number 6157, and it was called Miss Alva's Diner. It's actually really sad to see the recent pictures of this car. It's rusted, faded, its numbers and letters are nearly illegible. The scene is a far cry from the crisp green paint with white lettering and fancy trim that once beckoned visitors to miss Alva's barbecue. Like so many other pieces of rolling stock that have just been abandoned on side spurs around the country— This car is probably destined to just sit and rot until it's nothing more than a piece of rusty old metal. As for royal land itself, nothing remains. Only the iconic castle gates. And those are visible from the road. If you're tempted to visit, please don't. The land is private property, and it's reportedly crawling with ticks. There's nothing of any note beyond the gates left on site to see. I know it's probably obvious for every single abandoned site I talk about, but especially here. There's nothing there to see. The land is for sale if you're interested, but the royal family still owns a property and they do prosecute any and all trespassers. Instead, take a virtual walk. There are a couple unauthorized trespassing videos available on YouTube, Or you can take a look at it from a motion picture perspective, filmed in high definition, with permission. Royal Land was featured in an indie flick called Ozland back in 2014. The movie's available on Amazon Prime, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Fast forward to timestamp 4102 and take in a beautiful high-definition view of the old castle gates, the destroyed fairgrounds, the old baseball stadium. The movie was filmed in 2014 and it's beautiful to see. It's so nice to see the entire Royal Land, Buckwalter Stadium, and Fairgrounds area as it stands today. Poignant and sad. Lloyd Royal was the master of Royal Land and he brought liveliness and entertainment to Meridian and the South for decades. He started fairs in Petal and Hattiesburg as well as Meridian. He did the Royal Drive-In, as well as other theaters, Royal Land, and even WQIC, a radio station. This was a man with his hands in many businesses. He and his family had a long impact on the area. Today, some of those enterprises are defunct, but others still live on under new operation. And for what's gone, there's still memories of days and places gone by. This park, Royal Land, has been inside my brain for quite some time. Even with nothing left, there's still nothing quite like seeing that sudden, haunting image in front of you of seeing those dark castle gates slowly being enveloped back inside this forest of greenery. Once the land here was clear and neatly manicured, full of laughter and music and rides, today it's been reclaimed by the fast-growing flora of the South. Silent but for passing cars on the frontage road and the highway nearby. But if you stop and listen, maybe, just maybe, you can still hear the carousel music, like a whisper on the wind of a legacy of childhood joy. Can you hear it? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where this week I shared the story of royal land in Meridian, Mississippi. As always, I'm your host, Ashley, and you can find links, references, images, and a rough transcript up on the show notes page on my website. For this episode, visit theabandonedcarousel.com's backslash 29. If you're interested in supporting the show, visit my Patreon page. You can get some awesome behind-the-scenes extras, and you can support the making of a podcast that you like. You can find that information at patreon.com backslash theabandonedcarousel. If spending money to support the podcast isn't something you're ready for right now, please take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click on the show name, then click on ratings and reviews. There you can leave some stars. I'd love five of them if you want. And I'd like a few quick words. Your ratings help expand the reach of the show to other people. And they really help expand the audience for the show. And I really appreciate it. Of course, don't forget to tell a friend. I will be back soon with a very special episode, number 30. I can't wait to share this one with you. I'm already in progress on it. Remember what Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.